The name of the book of Psalms is actually a transliteration from the Greek word psalmas. You can hear that in there. And that is a translation of the Hebrew word mizmor, which means song, and especially that word mizmor, a lot of musical terms in Hebrew, like in our own language. That term mizmor specifically refers to a song with stringed instruments. And so that is where the word psalm comes from. And now because it was the title of the book in the Bible, we have taken that word psalm as an English word to mean a song, especially a praise song. The Hebrew title that they use is tehillim, which means praises, which is also a very appropriate title for the book, of course. And I'm sure you all know this, but the book of Psalms is a book of songs, 150 of them, depending on how you break it up. And that does not make it the longest book of the Bible. Believe it or not, the book of Jeremiah is actually longer than the book of Psalms. There are fewer chapters, but the chapters are much longer. Some of the Psalms are just one or two verses, and uh, there's short songs. We have short and long songs, too. But it is a long one, and it does take up the most space in the middle of your Bible, I would guess. And it's organized into five sections. And you probably have these marked in your Bible, depending on the translation. Book one is from chapter 1 through 41. Book two is chapters 42 through 72. Book three is chapter 73 through 89. Book four is chapter 90 through 106. And book five is chapter 107 through 150. And there have been a number of explanations that people have given of why it's split up into five pieces that way, uh, other than maybe just for organization's sake. The most popular idea is that these correspond in some way to the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, although nobody seems to be able to nail down exactly how each section corresponds to the Torah, so that is a possibility. The other one is uh, there are those that say this kind of tells the story of the Davidic covenant, that book one is about the crowning of David, and book two is about David running from Saul, and then in book three, he and Solomon are king, and then in book four, there's the falling away, and book five, it's the return from exile. But again, there are some who are very skeptical on that, and I think for good reason. It's very hard to find running themes through the book of Psalms, so you can do your own research on that and come to your own conclusion. But even when we talk about 150 Psalms, the organizations vary. In some translations, even in other languages from, not, not referring to the Hebrew, but uh, modern languages, they'll combine Psalm 9 and 10 together. Because Psalm 9 is the first half of an acrostic, and Psalm 10 is the second half of that acrostic. So some translations put them together. The Greek form divides chapter 147 into two different chapters. So both the Greek and the Hebrew Bibles have 150 chapters, but they are organized differently. So that's why sometimes if you're ever reading a book about the book of Psalms and they'll refer to one and then they'll have a bracket with a different number, that's probably referring to a different version of it. There are some traditions, I'm thinking mainly of the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox, that includes a 151st Psalm. This is a Psalm referring to David and Goliath. Uh, but even in the Septuagint, which was the official Greek translation of the book of Psalms and the entire Old Testament from around 200 BC, they had a mark in the book that says this is not to be placed with the others. Why they even bothered to translate it is beyond me, but they did. But they marked that this was not recognized canon, and uh, the Orthodox Church has a vested interest in having the Greek be the official text of the Old Testament, and so that's why they include it. But if you ever hear about the 151st Psalm, that's what it is. It's not that it's 
you know, sinful, but it's not scripture, and it's an important distinction to make. And the book of Psalms is included in the way that the Hebrews divide their Bible in what are called the ketuvim. Ketuvim is a word that means writings. So you maybe have heard the Old Testament referred to as the Tanakh. If you ever watched a Jewish scholar talk about it, Tanakh is actually an acronym, T-N-K. T stands for Torah, which is the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Nevi'im, the N, is prophets, and that's all of the prophetic literature. And then Ketuvim, the K, is the writings. That's pretty much everything else. You even see in the New Testament, they will refer to the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, because it's kind of including everything else. We have our own division. We talk about the historical books, the legal books, the prophetic books, the wisdom books, but those are our own divisions that are, are not related to any matter of inspiration or anything like that but it is part of the writings. Jesus will refer to the writings or the Psalms sometimes. Several different authors of the book of Psalms. Most famously is David, of course. You think of the book of Psalms, you think of David. David did not write all of them, and that's not a hot take. Uh, everybody knows that if you read it very carefully. 73 of the Psalms are specifically attributed to David. 73 specifically. 12 are ascribed to Asaph, who was one of the singers. 11 are attributed to the sons of Korah, although right in the middle of the section of the uh, Psalms written by the sons of Korah is another one that has no attribution, so some people would lump that in as a 12th Psalm for the sons of Korah, but 11, definitely. One was written by Moses, one by Ethan, one by Haman. These are uh, different singers in the tabernacle and the temple. One is by Solomon, and one is by a man named Yeduthun, who was another one of the singers in the temple. And then that leaves about 50 that have no attribution. And people will assume very often that it was David that wrote it. And I'm sure he did write a lot of those that don't have any name attached to them. But uh, mo most cases, if we don't know, we'll just refer to the psalmist. And we will uh, just trust that the Lord knows who it is. And that's, that's enough for us. And the authorship of some of these books, it'll say, you know, a Psalm of David, and then it'll have other notes too. This, this gets us into the headings of the book of Psalms. And as we're launching into the book of Psalms, it's important to talk about these headings. The one we're going to look at tonight doesn't have any of them, but there'll be lots of different notes that are attached to the beginning of a psalm, very similar if you ever played music in school, I mean formally with sheets and everything like that, there will be different notes at the top, there will be Italian form or words that will tell you a little something about it, it's just like that in the book of Psalms, it'll have the author, it'll tell you sometimes who it was written for, it'll tell you the occasion when it was to be played, sometimes it has the tune that is to be played, sometimes it tells you the instrument that would be used, sometimes it gives you a historical note of what the, the circumstances were in which the psalm was written. So Psalm 51 will say it was written when David was confronted by Nathan about the issue of Bathsheba. And there is a lot of discussion and debate over whether or not the headings of the psalms are inerrant and inspired like the text of the psalms are. Uh, the reason being, if you go back in some of the older readings and the older uh, manuscripts we have of the Old Testament, sometimes the headings are a little different. Sometimes there are chapters that don't have a heading that do in an older version or don't in a new one. So there are those that say the text is inspired, but the notes that are put in, put in are, are written later. And so you shouldn't pay them any mind. There are some that say that. I would not go that far. Uh, it's very obvious that even if these are not original to the text, they've been there for a very long time. And so I, I would describe the headings of the books of Psalms as established and recognized tradition 
and it is entirely possible that they are inspired and, and belong with the text as well. So that's how we're going to treat it as we go through. I don't really want to pick a fight about it. Um, it's, it. None of them really affect materially how we interpret the psalm. They're not going to change the theology of it or something like that. Uh, but it does sometimes lend a lot of interesting color to the psalm, and at the very least, that'll be helpful for us. And a lot of those headings, and even in the text, will include some technical terminology. You maybe have read a lot of these in, in a psalm, but it'll say, to be played with the geteeth. Like, I've heard of a guitar, I have no idea what a geteeth is. And uh, a lot of these words, we just simply don't know what they mean. And so they're transliterated. Sometimes it's an instrument that we just don't know what it was, or maybe it was a tune that we don't know about. Even the word selah, which is not in Psalm 1, but you see a lot in the Bible, we're not 100% sure what that means. It seems, I think the most likely one is that selah is similar to a musical interlude or a, a point to stop and, and meditate on something. It could just be that there was a transition in the music where the, the time signature change or the key change. We just don't know. So we're not going to be dogmatic on it, but we will review all these things in due course. And the Psalms, of course, were written in Hebrew poetry. English poetry, and many languages today, focuses heavily on rhythm and rhyme and meter. Rhythm and meter, of course, being how many syllables, where the emphasis is laid. Rhyming, of course, being you, you want it to sound the same at the end of the line. But that is not how Hebrew poetry works. In fact, most Semitic poetry is not concerned with rhyme and isn't even often concerned with meter either. So what you have in the book of Psalms, you'll have things like acrostics, where every line will begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You'll see things like that. But most often, the, the poetic device that the Hebrew poetry uses is called Hebraic parallelism. This is to say one thing and then say it again. Or to say one thing and then say the opposite. Or to say three lines that all are in the same form but build upon each other. And there's all different kinds of Hebrew parallelism. There's contrastive parallelism, synthetic parallelism, synonymous parallelism. You'll pick this up as we go. Uh, you see how often the Psalms repeat themselves. And the important thing to note is that the Bible is not always trying to describe three different things if it gives three lines in a row, but it's usually describing the same thing, although there is usually a nuance to catch, as we will see tonight. And there's also all kinds of different genres of psalms as we go through. We're going to have praise psalms. They're going to come up an awful lot. I read one author, I haven't confirmed this, but he said in his study, the most common genre of the book of psalms is the lament how long, O oh Lord? Those kinds of psalms. There are thanksgiving psalms. There's psalms for formal occasions. There's a wedding psalm in there. There's psalms that were sung as they went up to the temple for worship. There's all different kinds of genres, and we're going to study each one of those in turn as we go through them. And as far as the date of the book of Psalms is concerned, Psalms is huge. It starts way back with Moses, or maybe even before, and it goes all the way to the post-exilic period. So there are some that get concerned when you say things like, the book of Psalms was not written just by David, but there was an editor that came later. But that shouldn't trip you up. If you have a psalm by Moses and a psalm by David, and then a psalm talking about, we hung our harps on the, the trees of Babylon, these are obviously happening at very different times. So at some point... Somebody put all these things together and compiled it into a book that we have now. 
Traditionally, this would have been Ezra. We know that Ezra did an awful lot to reestablish things, but it, we just simply don't know. We just have the book. But what this gives us is it gives us a broad picture of worship among the nation of Israel. And the New Testament refers to the book of Psalms more than any other book. Isn't that interesting to think about? More than any other book, the Psalms are referred to and quoted in the New Testament. And there are several rousing messianic prophecies for us to see in this book. And because it's so big, it's hard for us to identify a single major theme of the book of Psalms. Like, you know, Leviticus, there's a pretty strong theme. How will we dwell in the presence of the Lord? Here's the law, here's how. Psalms is so big, there's all kinds of things. But I think if you wanted to pick one thing in the book of Psalms, other than maybe worship as a very broad theme, the Lord as king would be a good place to start. And I think you could add to that, the Lord and his coming Messiah as king would be the theme of the book of Psalms. Indeed, the theme of the whole Bible, I would say. But the Psalms themselves are largely detached from any particular setting. Even when you read a Psalm and it gives us a note of where it came from, you can read these words on their own. And that's how they were intended. This is why... Uh, Christian worship even today gets a lot of criticism. People say it's so broad, it's so general, just talking about anything, it says the same kind of things. Well, yeah, because it's supposed to be sung by thousands or even millions of people in, in, on the same Sunday every week. It's supposed to be something that can be for anybody. And when you get too specific with certain things, sometimes people feel like that's something I can't engage with. But the Psalms are, are there for us all. They're, they not only encourage us as we read them, the Psalms in, in a large measure are training. They teach us how to pray. They teach us how to worship. They teach us how to relate to God because God made this enormous book full of people talking and praying and singing and put it in there and you are allowed and permitted and encouraged and instructed to take those words on your lips as your own. That when it says, Lord, my heart is poured out like water and melts like wax. God encourages you to take those own words upon your lips when you feel that way. Or that when you feel cast down, to turn and say things like, why are you cast down within me, O my soul? Hope in God. That's why it's there. It's an example for us among everything else. And before we get into this psalm, we're going to be studying the whole book. I wanted to give us a little introduction here. Let me end this introduction with a final pet peeve. And that is how you are to specifically talk about and reference the book of Psalms. When you are talking about the book itself, you say the book of Psalms. When you refer to more than one chapter in this book, you call them Psalms 3 and 4. But when you are referring to one singular chapter of the book of Psalms, it is Psalm 1 or Psalm 119, or Psalm 150. Because the book of Psalms is not so much a title as much as a description of what is in it. So we're going to work on that. We're going to be talking about Psalm 45, not Psalms 45. And we're going to refer to the book of Psalms and use plural words when we talk about it, because we are using, that's we want to get it right. I'm going to say the same speech when we get to the book of Revelation, that there's no S at the end of that word, but we'll save that for a few weeks from now. So let's get into it now. Psalm 1. In verse 3, it tells us, In all that he does, he prospers. Let me just open this question. How would you like that to be said about you? 
Ah, tell me about Bob. Well, in all that he does, he prospers. I certainly would like that to be said about me. It reminds me of Joseph in Genesis 39.3 when it says that in everything that he did, did, he was successful because the Lord was with him. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 3.19 when it says that Samuel spoke and led the children of Israel and God did not let any of his words fall to the ground. In all that he did, he prospered. And this book of Psalms begins with what is called a wisdom psalm. It's the first genre we're going to see is a wisdom psalm. Just like the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it addresses righteousness and the good life. Wisdom literature is super down-to-earth and super practical, which allows us to ask a very practical question. How would you like that in everything you do, you prosper? This psalm is going to tell us how to do that. And this one in particular is related to the law of the Lord. But we're going to broaden that out to not just talk about the law, meaning the Old Testament Torah, but to God's way, the way that God would have us to live. That if you live that way in all that you do, you will prosper. There's a great lie that a lot of Christians believe, especially Christians who have been raised in church or have been in church for a long time. And the lie that they believe is that the good life is out there somewhere. The good life is in the way of sinners rather than in the way of the Lord. And we say things like, I really would love to be out there doing that, but, you know, I'm willing to die to myself and serve Jesus. <laughs> like we're so spiritual or doing God a favor or something like that. But the opposite of that is true, as this psalm will teach us. As we approach a new year, I hope that we can use this psalm to recommit ourselves to following God's way wholeheartedly. And take a look at where we might be drifting and kind of walking in this road a bit over here or taking that trail. Just a little, just a little detour. I'll get back eventually and, and just to be done with that and get back to where the Lord would have us. So shall we begin by reading the first two verses? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalm opens with the word blessed or blessed, if you're feeling old timey. This is the Hebrew word asher. It's the same word that was the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Asher. And the word means blessed. It can even mean happy. This is a, a state of being in God's favor, which, of course, has practical outworkings. This is living the good life. So automatically, it catches our attention. Blessed is the man who is blessed. I want to be blessed. Am I blessed? And verse 1, he's not going to tell us right away positively who's blessed. He's going to start out by telling us who's not blessed. And verse 1 has an excellent example of Hebrew parallelism there. It gives us a three-part bad example of who's not blessed or who's not happy. So look at this with me here. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. There's that repetition there. Walks, stands, and sits. Counsel, way, and seat. Wicked, sinners, and scoffers. It's really the same thing, but it's repeated. And you read some of these books, and God bless them, but these seminarians, it's really we're not quite sure why they were so repetitive. Because it's music, man. 
It's repetitious. You like it when it's repetitious. It's poetic. It's supposed to be that way. You can see how this is really what it's saying is wicked people are not blessed. But it, it says it in such a way that is poetic and emphatic and even builds on itself a little bit. Do you see this? Who walks in the counsel of the wicked. That would be to take life advice from wicked people. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. You're walking. Right? The Christian life is compared to a walk quite often. And he said, you're walking, but you're starting to take advice from the wrong people. That's the kind of man who's not blessed. Is who takes advice from wicked people. Who starts to look at his marriage or his job or whatever domain of his life and say, all right, I've heard what God has to say, but what about them over there? What does this religion or this philosopher have to say? What does this business guru or this, this entrepreneur have to say about life? When you start to walk in the counsel of the wicked, you start to blend the pure and undefiled following of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit with a few things you picked up along the way. That guy's not blessed. The next thing you see is to stand in the way of sinners. Immediately you notice a difference. We're not walking anymore. We're standing. We've stopped we're no longer making progress. We stand in the way. So we're not just taking advice from bad people. We have parted company from the righteous. We're no longer advancing. We're not walking down the wicked path, but you know we're standing and talking to the guys and asking them how it's going on that side of the fence. Now I'm not, I'm not with you guys all the way yet, but I don't know if I'm down with all this anymore. To stand in the way of sinners. When you part company from the righteous. When you've still determined in your heart, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'll never walk away from the Lord. But what you do is you walk away from God's church and God's people. And you surround yourself with people that are not following Jesus. Whether they respect you or not, it'll start to affect you. And you start to realize that I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And you start to see, you know what, their way makes an awful lot more sense. I would never walk it, but I can see why somebody would. And somebody asks you for advice, and maybe you don't go to the scriptures. Maybe instead you give them something that you picked up along the way. And the third thing is to sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, we're, we're not walking, we're not standing, we're not going anywhere. We have sat down in the seat of the scoffer, meaning we have now become one of those people. To take your place as one of those who hates God and hates his ways. You become like one of these people we see today who call themselves ex-evangelicals. These are people that grew up in the church or maybe even had some kind of ministry and they come out on Instagram or YouTube and they're very public about how I'm not following Jesus anymore. And usually it surprises no one because we haven't seen them bear any fruit in a really long time. But you can see how they've gone from being kind of rubbing shoulders with the world, but wanting to stand firm to now, you're just all in. And really, you've been in for a while, but you've been trying to ride that train as long as you can. You consider Lot. When we look at this, yeah, this is the person who's not blessed. They follow this trajectory. How about Lot, Abraham's nephew? When Lot separated from Abraham, the first thing he did is he lifted up his eyes towards Sodom. He said, ah, that's some nice land over there. Now, they're wicked people, and I would never be part of that, but, you know, I, I wouldn't. I, it's nice land. What can you say? The next thing we see is he has pitched his tents towards Sodom. I'm not in the city, but I'm nearby. I'm part of the community. You know, they need my help a little bit, but, you know, I don't want to be foolish about this. And then the next time we see him in Genesis 19, he's sitting in the gates of Sodom. 
meaning he's part of the local government. He's one of the respected officials of that wicked city. How many Christians have begun by being fascinated with sin only to abandon God's ways later? You can te- you, if you've been in the church long enough, you can detect this process when it starts. When somebody has nothing spiritual to say anymore, but what they get excited about and what they want to talk about has nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with his church. And they start to say things like, man, I just feel like everybody at church is so boring now. Nobody watches the shows I watch and listens to the music I like. And nobody, everybody just wants to talk about Jesus all the time. There is, there is more to life, don't you know? Fascination with sin. And if you see that long enough, you start to recognize it. And what we're supposed to do, according to the book of Jude, is to grab people like that by the collar and yank them back. What? I didn't go anywhere. Yeah, but you were on the way. You do this as a father with your children. You call them out before they make the mistake. I didn't do anything yet. So you were gonna. No, I wasn't. It's like, I've seen this, this movie before. This is a rerun. Christians will do this. They begin to be fascinated by sin. But as Luke 16, 13 tells us, no servant can serve two masters. Rather, he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or, I might add, anything else. It doesn't have to be money. It's usually money. It's often money. But put whatever else you want in there. Jesus says you will either give in to sin or give up on sin. I would say that a Christian walking in sin or flirting with sin or fraternizing with sin is very much like taking a drink with something nasty in it. You have to choke it down. You feel like you're about to throw up. Like, oh, that's uh, it's not good. And the more you do that, the easier it gets. And eventually what you decide to do is, you know what, I think I'm just going to, I'm either going to get rid of this entirely or I'm going to get rid of Jesus entirely. There's no, there's no middle ground. And people will say things like, there's tons of middle ground. And they'll refer to people who are halfway through this process. You can't look at those as examples. Well, look at Lot. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, but he's not living there. Okay, but fast forward it a couple years. We know where you're going. A lot of young Christians have a hard time with this because they haven't lived long enough to have seen some of this, and they think that they're too smart for the wisdom they get from those that are older than them. And sometimes it can be flipped. Somebody who's been older in the church doesn't think they could ever go down that path. And when some young whippersnapper tries to warn them about it, they say, well, what do you know anyway? I remember when you were still struggling with this, and I'm the one that taught you about that. And you didn't even know what that word meant until I explained it to you. You either are actively resistant to wickedness, or you will let go of the Lord Jesus. Instead, though, that man's not blessed. But verse 2 tells us that who's blessed? The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man, the happy man, delights in God's Torah, which can also just be instruction. You call it the way of the Lord. He delights in the way of life that God has given to us. He delights to do what the Father has told him to do, just like Jesus did. He delights to imitate Christ and submit to the Holy Spirit. Think about this. What delights you? When's the last time you were delighted? Teddy Roosevelt was famous for that. Whenever he met somebody, he'd shake their hand and say, delighted. So when's the last time you were delighted with something? He says the person who's 
going to be blessed and happy and living the good life is the one that is delighted by the word, who meditates on his law day and night. That word for meditate is the Hebrew word hagah, and it means to murmur or to talk under your breath. And it carries the idea of like you're, you're kind of reading it under your breath, like the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the way. What are you doing? Oh, sorry, I was just... I was rehearsing the, the word. It can mean to muse on something, to sit and think about it. It's very closely related in some passages to the idea of ruminating on something. And to ruminate on something refers to a cow or some other bovine that has four stomachs. And what they will do is they'll eat it, goes down into stomach number one, they will then spit it back up, chew it again, and then go down to stomach number two and all the way through so that they have fully gotten every piece of nutrition out of that food before they're done with it. It's the same thing with you and me and the word. We're supposed to be taking it in, but not just taking it in, but bringing it back up and thinking on it again, chewing on it again, meditating on it again, going home after Sunday service and taking some time to discuss what was, what was learned. That's why we have the home fellowships, so that hopefully you're thinking about it before you get there. You talk about it when you get there, and that gives you fresh things to talk about as you go on to the next one. Rather than groaning at God's way, as we have a bad habit of doing, we are to delight in God's way, to make it the central component of our life, of our thought, of our contemplation, not just to find a good place for God, but to make God the centerpiece and to build everything else around that. You know how to delight in something. Some of y'all delight in your sports team. You know everything about them. You know everything about every version of that team since you know, 1945 or whatever it is. You, you know the stats, you know the rules, you know the champions, you know the coaches. You watch it and then you read about it and you go back and watch the replay. You can, now they're releasing things online where you can watch the game film like the day after the game. And there are guys where you watch the game Sunday and then Monday you watch another guy breaking down the film and slowing it down for you. And you don't even play for that team, but you're doing the work. Or it could be something that you're interested in, some kind of fan that you are of some television show or some series or movie or book or whatever it might be. Or even some celebrity that you follow and that you like. Or a musician. Or a hobby that you have, in, whether it's in the yard. I mean, if you try to get into any kind of hobby, you'll be amazed how deep it goes. It's like, wow, I don't know anything about this. You know how to do that because you do it for something. Now what the Bible is telling us is you need to do that for the Lord and His Word. The usual state for a Christian, unfortunately, is to find out how much is enough, do that, so that we're freed up the rest of our time to be entertained. That's messed up. Think about your life. What do you hustle through in your day so that you can get to do something else at the end? What is that goal? In the ideal day, you finished all your obligations so that you can what? Go back to bed, <laughs> watch TV, go exercise, read. What is it? So not always ignoble things. But the question is, is the Lord the delight of your life ever? Are you making time or are you trying to fit it in? This will only breed dissatisfaction with God's way. Say, man, this is really just cramping my style, man. Because it, every morning I read my Bible you know, for a few minutes, but even that wakes up my conscience so that I can't really enjoy myself the rest of the day. I need to do less of that. We've got to increase the influence of God's Word in our lives. That should be your resolution for this year. That you will be more influenced by the Holy Spirit through the written Word and the, the ministry of the church than you were the previous year. 
that it will be obvious to everybody who sees you that you got closer to God this year. I hope that's the case for you this last one, but I hope it'll be more so next time. If you want to be blessed according to the Bible, abandon the ways of the world and delight yourself in God's way. Evaluate everything you do in life and say, am I doing this God's way or am I just doing this by default? You've got to fix that. Hopefully you'll default to the Lord's way. That's a much better way to live. But verses 3 and 4 continue to describe this man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There you go. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So now he tells us, all right, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is the one who's blessed. What does that life look like? He compares him to a tree planted by the water. Now what's the advantage of a tree that's been planted by the water? You don't need to water it as often. Because the roots go down and the roots begin to drink up the water. And because it's a stream of water, you're not worried about it drying up. This is why you go anywhere in the world and you can see that the trees grow biggest and tallest and the foliage is thickest next to the water. I mean, just look at the Amazon rainforest where there's so much water and so much rivers that crisscross everything. Everything grows bigger. You look at the Nile River. Look at Egypt during the flood season and it's a big tan desert region except for this strip of green with blue in the middle because by the water is where all the trees grow. You get the idea. And it bears fruit in its season and it never withers. That's true prosperity is never withering. I love that picture of the, the leaf does not wither. Dwight Moody, who you probably know he, who he was, a famous evangelist, uh, he said, all of God's trees are evergreen. When God plants a tree, there's no deciduous season where it all falls, the leaves fall and you're dry. No, no, God's trees are evergreen if you're delighting in the Lord's way. Now, this is obviously a reference to eternal life in one big sense, right? That you're planted by the water. If you're drinking from the living water of God's Holy Spirit, that's eternal life. However, this is also saying that God's way leads to a good life. Not just eternal life, but a good life now. Very often, as I said, we think of God's word and God's commandments and God's way as something that is oppressive. But 1 John 5, he put it this way. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Right? Some people want to say, everyone's all worried about the rules. You just got to love God. Yeah, but the Bible says if you love God, you keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. If you think they are, the problem is with you, not with the Lord. How can you say that? Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So he's saying, the commandments are not burdensome. He's saying, it's hard to resist temptation. And John goes, yeah, but people that follow Jesus and live this way overcome the world. They rise above everything that brings everybody else down. So how can you call that commandment a burden? Everyone else is trapped in the rat race of life. That you wake up, you work, you come home, you eat, you watch TV, you go back to sleep, wake up the next day and do it again. Everybody's trapped in that. You know, it used to be people said the way to fix that is that people don't need to work nine to five jobs anymore. You just got to be able to do your thing. Well, now there's less of that than ever before. And it seems like it's worse than ever before. Because now you're having to figure out what to do with all your time every day. And you realize that no nothing really means anything. You have those Ecclesiastes moments, right? 
Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's what, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about, right? Embracing that. We wake up and we live and then we die and, you know, my dog dies and my fish died and my bird died, so how are we really any better than them? Now, we know resurrection comes into that, but that's the attitude, right? But here's the thing. Those who are born of God overcome that. Is there anything that is too expensive to give up for that? Do you not think that if you could ask some of the richest men in the world, how much would you pay to have peace, to have joy, to know that you're going to live forever? Some of them already sink billions of dollars into living as long as they can. And some of them have even paid to get like frozen so that maybe one day they'll be able to wake me back up again. All right, well, don't you know that eternal life is free? It just costs everything you have. Just think, every point of stress in your life, every anxiety in your life, every fear in your life is the result of you refusing to give something over to God's way. I don't mind saying that. Every point in your life where you are not experiencing joy, not experiencing peace, not experiencing love or faith, that, those are things that God has commanded us to have. My peace I give to you that passes all understanding. It will guard your heart. Do not be anxious, but in all things make your request known to God. Jesus said, do not be anxious about anything. Do not fear, says the Bible 365 times. Isn't that something? Well, this is just the way God wants me. No, that's because there's a point of conflict in your life. That's because you're trying to take the pure water of the Lord and put something else in it, and it doesn't taste good. So there's disruption there's, there's struggle. There's some sin or attitude or belief or self-image that God wants to break and you won't let him. Sin only ever makes things worse. Have you ever sinned and thought, I'm so glad I sinned? I feel much better now. Maybe you did the first time, but what happened after you do that for a long time? This has got to stop. There's lots of things in your life where people will say, yeah, you know, I used to get drunk and wasted when I was in, you know, a kid. But, you know, I don't know if I really regret that, but it's got to stop. You know what? You never say that kind of thing about Jesus. I used to pray a lot when I was a kid, but man, I really got to cut back on my prayer time. It's wrecking my life. I used to read the Bible all the time, but man, it's just, it's like it owns me now. And people don't go to rehab for stuff like that. Because God's ways are good. God doesn't just tell us to do things because he wants us to. He tells us to do them because they're good. God created the world. God created you in his image. He knows how the world works and he knows how you work. So he says, do this. And you go, stop telling me what to do. And then your life breaks and you blame God. <laughs> We're silly people, aren't we? Now, I'm not saying that the Christian life is just going to be an easy walk the whole time. That's obvious. Fruit comes in season. Doesn't it? Fruit comes in its season. I'm not saying that every day is going to be a victory. Some days you're in a battle. But if you are in Christ, every battle ends in a victory. I was talking about this with my sons in the car on the way here. Micah and Colt both read about Joseph in their devotions this morning. And Micah said how God is always on time. That's what he learned. I'm like, yes, he is. And if you had asked Joseph while he was in prison, he'd say, aren't you glad that the Lord put you here? He might say, no. But he probably said, but I trust that God's going to work it out. The same way, if you look at your life in, right now, I can't do this. You say, man, but 
the story's not over. You can't stop now. You ever watch a movie? Sometimes I'll do this. You had a stressful day and you just want to watch a movie and the movie's just real intense, so you just turn it off halfway through. Like, I know it's going to have a happy ending, but I don't need this. I need something that's going to make me have, you know, turn on SpongeBob or something like that. This just isn't going to tax my emotions. But you, you can't do that in life, man. You've got to trust that in Christ, it's always building to something wonderful. And that takes faith, doesn't it? How do you know that? I, because I know him. And I know that there's never been a story that God told that did not end happily. And even if I die in this process, at the end, I'm going to live forever in heaven. Oh, that's a cop-out. It most certainly is not. It's, I, when people say things like that, it's like, haven't you known someone who's died? Haven't you ever contemplated your own mortality or had an injury where you weren't sure how you were going to come out of it? And you say things like eternal life is a cop-out. I don't think so. You get to live life like a tree planted by the streams of water, yielding your fruit in season and your leaves don't wither. But in everything you do, you prosper. The alternative in verse 4 is to be driven away like chaff before the wind. Chaff. You have wheat and you have chaff. When you harvest wheat, you break it up, you, you thresh it, as it said. And if you watch uh, the old Ten Commandments movie, there's a great picture of this, which is exactly how they did it. They'd, take a, they'd have the animals walk on it and kind of grind it and thresh it that way. And then they would take their pitchforks and stick it in and toss the grain up in the air. And the chaff was light. It was the shell of the outside, and it would blow away. So by the time they were done, all you had was usable grain on the floor. So he says, you'll be driven like chaff before the wind. The exact opposite of a tree planted by the water is chaff that blows away. I'd say that, you know, chaff that dr the wind drives away. We're going to look at this from an eternal perspective, but let's look at this from a right now perspective. To live a life where chaff is blowing you away or you're being blown away like chaff is to live a useless life. There are so many people that are living useless lives not that they are useless, but the things they engage in are going to count for nothing later. There's no value to it. You finish it, it's over, now what? You might be the, the biggest expert on something, but if that thing is stupid, what difference does it make? You know, when I was a kid, I knew all kinds of information about various books and video games and Star Wars and all the rest of it. Yeah, it was fun when I was a child, but it was fluff. It's not going to come up at the judgment seat. Now, those are obvious examples, but there are some things that even men will devote their entire lives to, and it's just useless fluff. I believe John the Baptist was referring back to this, this psalm in Matthew 3, verse 12, when he's describing the one that was coming after him. Remember, John was an intense guy. John was talking about Jesus, but he didn't say, oh, he's going to forgive all your sins, as true as that was. What he said was, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. That's what sin does. Unquenchable fire. The desire to have a foot in both worlds as a Christian is to end up with nothing in both. Because the world isn't going to benefit you anything anyway. And if you are only giving half-hearted effort to the things of God, you're not going to do enough to earn any treasure in heaven or to bear any fruit worth having. This is what sin does. Everybody wants the good life, but nobody's willing to do what it takes. 
You know, I'm not about to brag on myself here. I'm just going to say, I've never had a moment in my life where I have really rebelled and ran away from the Lord. God has preserved me, and I'm very grateful for that. And I always did things pretty much by the book, and I, I mean that with a capital B. I always have thought, had the thought in my head, if this is God's word, then what are we doing? This is God's word. We've got to do it that way. And so, by the grace of God, I've been able to live a very happy and prosperous and, I, I think, a great life. And I'll have people, friends of mine, that will come to me and say, man, you and Catelyn seem so happy. How did you do it? And so we tell them. And then they argue with us. <laughs> or they'll say, oh, Tyler, you know, did, did you save yourself for marriage? And I was like, yes, I did. Catelyn and I were both virgins. We got married. How did you do that? Well, when we were together, we made some very strict rules about what we were and weren't going to do. And we were, we were never alone together where there weren't other people. And they'll say things like, oh, that seems so boring. Like, you asked, pal. You asked me. It's like when people who have a lot of money are asked how they got all their money, and then they tell people, and they go, well, I don't agree with that. Say, well, you're broke, <laughs> so we're not going to listen to you. The Bible tells you what's right. It tells you how to live. It tells you how to interact with people. It tells you how to handle your money. It tells you how to worship the Lord. But we come up with all of our theories. Well, I went to college. Great. Now that means you've got a lot of de-puffing to happen to you. You know, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. You've met those people at college, haven't you? You've met those smart people. They're puffed up. Or they don't even have to go to college. I, the most arrogant person I've ever met was a uh, co-worker I had at Subway when I was eight, eight, 17, 18 years old. He told me how he was accepted to Oxford, but he just felt like he wasn't going to be challenged there. And this guy knew everything about everything and had no respect for the irony of his situation. Now, I was working there too. But this guy, he was much older than I was. It was all he had ever done. But he still believed he had the world right where he wanted it. Knowledge puffs up. And it keeps you from doing the right thing because you come to God's word and Jesus has loved your enemies and you go, oh, I disagree. God goes, I wasn't asking. I was telling you what is right. You have to forgive. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Well, I'm just having a hard time getting over that. I didn't ask. If you want to be blessed and if you want me to forgive you, you have to forgive. Well, I can't just choose to do that. Yes, you can. And yes, you better. People look at those who are doing the right thing in any area of life. Look away wistfully. I wish my life could be like that. And God goes, you can. I've got a book for you. But then folks will get mad. Everybody's always trying to tell me how to live my life. Well, you're always complaining about your life and how bad it is. Well, I just want to, I've got to figure it out for myself. Hey, friend, no, you don't. God's given you his word, and the church is full of people that have been saved from all kinds of stuff that can tell you and warn you about that. Do you want your endeavors to last and your life to mean something? Do you want it to be like a tree planted by the water with big, strong roots that will never be shaken? Or do you want to be like chaff blowing in the wind? The answer is to do it God's way. God's way. Verses 5 and 6, we move from the right now perspective to the eternal perspective. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You check that parallelism there. The wicked sinners stand in the judgment, congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, verse 6, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
The wicked will not stand. Judgment is coming for us all. And the world's priorities are going to look pretty foolish on that final day. Jesus, talking about hell in Luke 13, said, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south. He's talking about Gentiles there. And recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first. And some are first who will be last. Jesus says, your priorities and your hierarchy has very little to do with how I evaluate things. He told the prophet Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Living God's way is good for life. It'll give you a better life, but it is essential for the afterlife. Righteousness is an investment that, yes, pays dividends now. But man, when that investment matures, it's going to be everlasting life. There is no greater tragedy than to scorn God your whole life, succeed in that life, and then lose it all. That's why Mark 8, 36, Jesus said, why do you want to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So what, what would you give in exchange for your soul? The idea being everything. He goes, then why are you chasing this other stuff at the expense of your soul? And it doesn't have to be money, like some big capitalist king. It can be any one of us and whatever the thing is that you are chasing at the expense of your spiritual life. You spend more time on that than you do with the Lord. If time is money, then let us consider what Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus said on the final day in Matthew 7, he said on the final day, there will be many that will expect to enter heaven that he will send away and said, I did not know you. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And what is the true work? What is the thing that must be done so that you'll be accepted, to be righteous on that final day? It's really the only question to be answered. The only job given to a man is to die well. The only goal that I have for my life above everything else is to rise from the dead, is to not stay dead. That was Paul's final goal, that by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So how do we get there? The true work, as we read on Sunday in John 6, is required of all of us, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he was the Son of God who came down to earth John says, if you don't believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, you're an antichrist. Well, I love what he had to say, but I don't believe he was God. Then John says, then you were opposed to everything he ever said. Because that was the most important thing about him. But not just that, but that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Not that the cross is a symbol that the church made up, but that he actually died for the forgiveness of sins, and that he then rose again on the third day. Never speak about the cross without mentioning the empty tomb. It wasn't just that he died, it's that he died and rose again. Bodily, not as in symbolic. Well, he's alive in our hearts. Yes, but he's also alive, actually. And that he will come to judge the living and the dead in accordance with that gospel. That the only question to be asked upon entry to heaven is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? In fact, you won't even be asked the question. The Holy Spirit and the angels will sort that out well before you get there. 
Matthew 3, verse 10. John, in that same passage that I read before, John the Baptist, he said, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cast into the fire. Every tree is going to be cut down, right? It doesn't matter how well planted by the water you are. You're going to die one day. And the question is, did this tree bear good fruit? That's the gospel. Crazy thing is, most people who believe everything I just said refuse to go all in in their discipleship and obedience to Jesus. Most Christians do not give Jesus everything they have, even though that is exactly what he requires. When a rich man came to Jesus, he said, get rid of your riches. When a guy who loved his family came to Jesus, he said, leave your family. That's the price of admission. It's you. It's everything you've got. Most Christians, meaning those that are in the church today, prefer the way of sinners. They would rather be living like a sinner. In fact, most of what they do, they try to pattern after the way of the unrighteous. How much can I do and still be okay? Rather than, God, here's my heart, here's my soul, here's my hands and my feet. Take everything. Like Peter saying, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Take everything, Jesus. Leaving their nets, but then like Peter after the crucifixion said, I'm going fishing. Going back to my, my boat. I used to like that. I used to really like that. And Jesus took me away from it. But you know, I don't think he'd mind. God knows the way of the righteous because that's his way. That's the road to blessing. And that's what this psalm is. The first word in Psalm 1 is blessed. The last word in Psalm 1 is perish. Those are your options. You can be blessed or you can perish. So that seems like a pretty obvious choice. You'd think so until you realize what it costs. Talking about trees being planted by streams of water, here's a pretty cool image for you. There's something, I don't know who named it, but it's called Pando. This is a 108-acre aspen tree forest. But that name forest is deceptive because it's not a forest. It has 40,000 individual stems rising up from the ground. But this apparent forest is actually one single tree. It has an interconnected root system. They are all growing together, and every one of those trees has the exact same DNA. It's one organism. It's near Fish Lake in Utah. It's called Pando. It's a grove of trees that are really one tree, planted by the water. They estimate that this thing might be the oldest living organism today. That there is nothing that has lived longer than this tree which is 40,000 trees altogether. And I love the picture of this. It is a grove of trees that are all made in the image of a single tree, forming a single forest that endures forever. That is the picture of those who walk in God's way. That we all stand on our own, but we're not really. We're made in the image of Jesus Christ. And because we are connected to Jesus Christ at the deepest level, that enables us to stand through anything. That's the picture of those who walk in God's way. So we're coming to the end of the year. We're looking into a new one. And I've been talking very generally about the way of the Lord and how God has told us to live. Let me just remind you some really basic things. Don't lie. In the new year, don't lie. God never lies to you. 
Don't rage. Don't let your temper get out of control. You are not at the mercy of your temper when the Holy Spirit has filled you. Don't steal. You'd be surprised how many people steal and think nobody notices. Don't lust. Don't just allow that to be part of your life. Don't do that any longer. Don't envy. Don't look at somebody else and resent them and kind of get glad when their life doesn't go so good because you wish you had what they had. Don't manipulate people. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be a passive-aggressive person. Don't hate. Jesus said, if you hate, it's the same thing as murder. Don't be lazy. The Bible says that sluggards are displeasing to the Lord. What should we be doing instead? Study the Word. Meditate on it day and night. You should be praying. This is obvious. But people get tired of hearing it, but they don't do it. If you love to pray, you never get tired of hearing about prayer. When your prayer life is good, that's all you want to talk about. But if you're not praying, you see it as a useless conversation. You need to be in church, and you're here. Good for you. You need to be with God's people. If you're not, then you might be standing in the way of sinners. You need to be giving of your time and your treasure to the Lord. The first fruits of whatever you have. We ought to be serving one another. You ought to be sharing the gospel to evangelize, to lead people to Jesus. Sowing seeds, watering. You ought to be worshiping the Lord your God. Taking every opportunity to lift up your voice in song with the congregation. And you need to love your brothers and sisters. You need to love each other. And not just your brothers and sisters, your countrymen, your neighbors, your enemies. You need to love them. And you might think to yourself, nobody lives that way. Yeah, you're right. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus told us, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. A Christian is not to be persuaded by how many people are doing something. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You want to find eternal life? It's hard. It's a hard road. If anybody told you otherwise, sorry. Now, are the benefits just incalculable? Yeah, they are. Are the commandments for your good and not burdensome? Yeah. But they're hard. Most people won't find their way. Don't let it be said of you, though. Don't let yourself be drawn away after the world's ways. Those of you that have been casting a longing eye upon the things of the world, maybe the stuff you used to do before you got saved. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're upset because you didn't get to sow your wild oats like everybody else, completely forgetting the fact that everybody that did that is regretting it and carrying a whole bunch of baggage with them now. Stop doing that. There's only grief down that road for you. In life, the Christian is liberated from the world's cares and lives a life that will succeed. We're above all of that. And the world has constantly accused the church of not caring about the real problems. And don't you understand? And you think you're better than us? But it's because we found the true way, the way of the Lord. And in death, the Christian is assured of eternal life, regardless of what place you came in in the race of life. Because many who are last will be first in the kingdom of God. In this new year, may we commit ourselves to walking in God's ways, the way of the righteous, which is the way that the Lord knows, so that we may be blessed and happy and live forever together in heaven.